As the story of Abraham unfolds, we begin to see how the whole of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are weaving a beautiful tapestry of truths. From ravaging hunger to spiritual awakening, there's a reason why Abraham is an ancestor to so many and why this narrative still rings true. Hungering, going up by jumping out of an airplane, and the Shema. This week on A Rabbi and a Pastor Walked In. Hi again, this is Rabbi Ari. And this is Pastor Danielle. Welcome to... A Rabbi and a <laughs> Pastor Walked In. We, we have a book It says, A Rabbi, a Priest, and a Pastor Walked Into a Bar, and it's a picture of all three of them sitting on the floor. With they their, said, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> anyway, we, we did knock our heads today. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, Genesis 12, verse 10 to 13, verse 1. Um, which is the story of Avram and Sarai going down and back up from Egypt. And if we get some time, we'll go on to um, the story of Avram and Lot, his nephew, splitting apart. And what's interesting is you notice that this says chapter 12, verse 10 to 13, verse 1. The chapters and verses were put in. The verses were verses, but the chapters were separated much later in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are not Jewish divisions. Um, Jewish divisions are internal to the text, and they were sometime long ago before, but that this is not normally uh, consonant between our divisions and the Christian divisions from the Middle Ages. And this is an example of one that doesn't fit either version, one chapter division, because the story goes down to Egypt and then back up to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And I guess sometimes they had chapter divisions that were, um, they made them a little longer and had lots of little stories in them. And I, uh, the Jewish division doesn't worry about longer chapters. It just has little bitty divisions when you want them and big divisions when you need them. So in any case, um, not that they're always better. Some of them are kind of crazy as well. But here we're going to go down to Egypt. <laughs> yep. So here they're heading down to Egypt. And where they've been thus far is Abraham's entered into the land and come down from the north, sort of on that patriarchal ridge route or watershed ridge route heading down on the spine of those Judean mountains coming through and then going through Bethel and then going continuing down and Abram's going to hang out in the Negev because he's a desert shepherd guy and down in that area then we're going to have a verse then in verse 10 of chapter 12 that's going to repeat often in our text in in sort of some essence or another, that there's a famine in the land, and so then God's people are going to have to go to Egypt as a result. Now, what's kind of interesting, the word for famine is hunger. Hmm. There was a hunger in the land. And later on, the prophets will use hunger and thirst as a way to talk about people's yens for God. They'll have a hunger for truth and a hunger for God and a thirst for truth and a thirst for God. In this case, it's physical Physical hunger. Physical hunger, right. And uh, and that drives them down. This is a whole prefiguring of the Exodus story. Mm -hmm. That as the Israelites as a whole in the time of Joseph... And Jacob will go down to Egypt because of the famine, and they'll come back up because of plagues. And that's exactly what's going to happen in this story as well. Right. And and I think what, for people who maybe are interested more also in how the land is functioning, uh, the land of Canaan, that's later going to be called the land of Israel, um, that land is a land between, right? And when it doesn't rain there, and right now we're in the season of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, where we pray to God for rain so that it'll come, so that we can survive in the land, right? Um, but that if that rain doesn't come, it it is very quickly a very inhabitable, 
uninhabitable place where it's difficult to live, right? You need that rain because if you don't have the rain, it's not just that you're thirsty, it's that you are actually hungry because your crops don't grow and you then can't feed your animals. And then your animals are now also starving. And then that means you don't have wool. And you, you don't, don't have milk. You don't have milk. You don't have clothes because you don't have the wool. You don't have maybe even, you can't even patch your tents because you don't have that wool and like the camel's hair and the goat's hair and everything else that's necessary. So it's a very, you're, when we think about famine in the land, we don't want to just think about, oh, they were pretty hungry, so they decided to go. It's like no bit of life is easily eked out in those situations because you're you're not just hungry you're also thirsty but you're also naked right there's like there's no way to continue to live and you have to make this this journey down to the south and egypt is a place where it's sort of this breadbasket of the world people can go there because the nile is is going to be watering the the crops for a long time it's it can be counted on but now I'm glad you brought up Sukkot because the Haftarah, the reading for the prophets for the first day of Sukkot is chapter 14 of Zechariah, of Zechariah, who says that if a p- nations don't observe Sukkot themselves, not just Jews, mm-hmm. if they don't observe the Feast of the Booths and the Wandering, then the rain won't fall for them either. Right. Except for Egypt. Mm-hmm. God will figure out some other way to punish them because they don't <laughs> depend on the rain. <laughs> they don't depend on the rain. They don't yeah. depend on the rain. Yeah. Which is part of when the Israelites do leave Egypt after their 400 years and then they're in the in the wilderness. This is what they're going to complain about to Moses. Like, why did we leave that place to come into this land where we have to depend on God for everything, right? In Egypt, we could just drag our heel in the water, in the soil, and water would sort of fill in and we could grow our crops that way, right? This is Deuteronomy's picture of how Egypt is well watered and it's a land where it things does say are easy you water by your feet but yeah. i never thought of it the way you think of it i always thought of it as treading on a water wheel and bringing water out of a canal that you dug yeah no I, if you go and you stand by the nile in egypt it's mucky and muddy as it gets close to the shore as you'd expect right if you can get through the if you, ha- trinket hawkers <laughs> right no there's plenty the of places where it's, <laughs> it's not so touristy and then you can see how it's really just that picture of just dragging your foot through and the water just comes right on in Right, so it's a quite it's an easy way to water your crops and have food. Yeah. Well, I guess I've been defeated in my discussion. <laughs> anyway, I want to read uh, the first story in Hebrew and English uh, of going down to Egypt and coming back, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the details. There was a hunger in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt, Lagulsham, to live there or to reside there temporarily. Because the hunger was heavy in the land. That that word for lagur, is that the concept of gar inside of that? That's well? gar. So for those who don't know what gar is, gar means to be a temporary resident. So when you ask somebody where they are to reside somewhere, mm-hmm. and so if you ask somebody in Hebrew where do you live, you don't say efo atachai, where do you live? Have life. Right? Have life. Where are you? Where are you alive? I'm alive wherever I am. You say, "If where do you reside?" Mm-hmm. And then the what's interesting is that Avram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, were gerim, strangers. We were strangers. We were wandering residents, temporary residents, Gervatoshav, um, and the fir- and he has a second wife concubine whose name is the resider Hagar. Hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The one who resides, and right. she and she then gets kicked out later on. So. She'll be coming soon, right? She'll, yeah. she'll be leaving soon. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and when he got close to coming to Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, Look, you know, you're really gorgeous. <laughs> um, now, remember... He was 75, at least, probably maybe 80, and she was 70. Yeah, she's good looking. She's just, yeah, she's the Jane founder of her age. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this, is, this woman is that guy's wife. And they'll kill me and leave you alive. Imrina, say please, that you're my sister, so it'll be okay for me, Bavorech. On your account, v'hayta nafshi b'glalek, and I'll be staying alive because of you. V'hi kavo Avram Mitzrayim, v'yiru Mitzrayim et Aisha. When he got to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that woman ki afahi ma'od that she was really a looker. V'yiru ota Sarai Pharaoh, and and so the it's interesting here the um, the courtiers of Pharaoh are spelled the words courtiers Sarai is spelled exactly as Sarai, Sarai. and so, so the Sarai saw Sarai the courtiers of Pharaoh saw her uh, and they praised her El Paro to Pharaoh and she was taken to the house of Pharaoh and so it was really good for Avram after that he got all kinds of good gifts by being you know the brother brother of the Whatever she was, the consort mm-hmm. of, the, of the Pharaoh, he loaded son vakar, and he got all these sheep and cattle, vachamorim and asses, vavadim and servants and male and female shvachot, vatonot and gamalim and donkeys and camels, vaynaga Hashem et paro, and so God afflicted, plagued. Pharaoh, Nigaim Gedolim, big plagues, Ved Beto, and also the rest of his household, Aldivar Sarai Eshet Avram, because of what God had done, because of what had been done to, uh, to Abraham's wife, I cried Paro, La Avram, and Paro called out to Avram and said, Vayomer, Mazotasitali, what did you do to me? Lama Loi Gadatali Ki Ishtahahi, why didn't you tell me she's your wife? Which leads to the question of how did you know? Well, I'll talk about that in a second. Lama Amar Achotihi. Why'd you say she's your sister? Vaikachotali Leishan. I saw I took her from my own woman. Vaatahine Ishtacha. Kach Valech. Here's your woman. Take her. Take her. Go. Vaitzavalav Paro Anashim. Vaishachu Oto. Vetishto. Vetkol Asherlo. And Pharaoh made sure they got out of the country by putting an escort around him and kicked him out of the border. Vayal Avram Mimitzrayim. Huve Ishto. Vachol Asherlo. Veloti Moha Negba. And so Avraham, Avram went out of Egypt and went up from Egypt to the land of Canaan, to the Negev. Everybody with him as well as Lot. And this is the first example of going up to the land of Israel. And from that word up, al, you get the word aliyah, which is to go up to Israel. Israel is always going up. You always go up. No matter from where you're going. There's a a rabbi that said, a modern rabbi said, if you were flying over Israel and over Jerusalem and parachuted out of your (laughs) airplane directly above Jerusalem, you would still be going up to Jerusalem. You see, <laughs> you just can't avoid it. Can you? you can't avoid it. You always have to go up. Yeah. Nope. So <laughs> this is a fancy story. And, and so they say the deeds of the ancestors are, are the uh, promises to their 
descendants. And so here we have the story of the Exodus in just a few verses. Yeah. The whole story. Yeah. And it's it's an incredible picture. And I think, you know, just even reading these few verses, there's all these pictures that will pop into my mind. The idea that you're always going up to God, and yet we'll get to a story later on in our Bible with Jonah, with Jonah, and we discover that, oh, you can also go down, right? If you go down and down and down, you still can't escape God. And what an important picture that is, even though we have this picture, we're always going up. The, the Bible's going to sort of counter that argument with, yes, I'm here, but I'm also there and down there and over here and under there and everywhere you go. And then I love this, what is, uh, you know, Pharaoh's response, like, what is it you've done to me, right? Mazot, like, what have you done to me? Mazot, and then that line, exactly that line, isn't that what Jacob says when he wakes up in the morning and he sees that it's not Rachel and it's Leah, and he's like, what have you done to me? That's a cool association. <laughs> it's the exact same framing and not too far. I mean, they're in a different location, but a little bit, you know, again, this idea of being With deceived. the wrong woman. The wrong woman. What have you done to me here? Hmm. Never thought of that one either. That's a good it's one. It's kind of fun. Having a lot of fun today. Uh, the weird thing is uh, that everybody points out is this is not the way you want to basically go around describing yourself as a married couple. I'm <laughs> Just tell them you're my sister, and that way I can live here while the famine is on, and I won't be killed. Right. You may have to spend the rest of your life married to somebody who's not your husband. Sure. Um, but, but, you know, technicality. <laughs> and the, the kind of irony is that uh, today um, the nomination hearing for Judge Kavanaugh is happening with Professor Christine Blase Ford, uh, accusing him of a sex crime. And here we have Avram pimping his wife. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. And, and so uh, it, it's not lost. The irony of this, this kind of, we did not plan. We didn't plan it this way. They did not plan it this way. Um, and, 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 and this is not the only time that this is going to happen, this wife-sister story. Right. Um, it's going to happen again in chapter 20, where they're in Avraham and Sarai at this time, uh, are in uh, Gerar, which means sojourn land right <laughs> Gerar, Gerar. and um and avimelech which is not a philistine name it's a semitic name means uh, father king uh does the same thing only in this case uh he uh god talks to avimelech right and tells him what's happening what's happening in this case pharaoh plague is plagued by god right and God does not talk to Pharaoh. And then later on, we have the same thing happen uh, again, another Avimelech, and again in Gerar. It might be the same Avimelech, and it's Isaac and Rebekah. Right. And this time, <laughs> the king of Gerar looks through the window, and we and don't know if he's sees, looking out of his right. palace and sees them in the garden, or is just poking in a peeping Tom way <laughs> into their right. quarters. I don't know. But in any case... Uh, so there are three different stories in three different times and three different ways that they find out. So I think we can read these stories through our 21st lenses and just say, this is appalling, right? What kind of husband? Why is why can Abraham be the father of our faiths, right, if uh, this is how he's behaving? And Would what he have been of- confirmed as the patriarch of our people by the <laughs> Senate if he had... <laughs> If this had come up. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right, we would have had other conversations. So I think in part, one of the important things to recognize is how this portion of the ancient Near East is functioning and what the house of the father, the bait of, uh, means as people are sojourners in the land and how that works. So if a woman is traveling through 
in that community. And she is simply, these sound like arbitrary rules because they are. Just like we have a lot of arbitrary rules within our culture too, that there's certain things that we do because everybody does them, but that doesn't necessarily mean um, that they have a whole bunch of agreed upon uh, buy-in. Right? It's not like everybody thought, no, that's the best way to do it, but it's the way that it was functioning. So if a woman and a man are traveling in through that world and their husband and wife, and then she's beautiful and Pharaoh wants her, then he just kills Abraham and takes her. But if Abraham is the brother and he now is somebody that he that needs to be negotiated with in order to have Sarai join the family, and now a bride price has to be given. And so Abraham's going to get a whole bunch of donkeys and a whole bunch of camels and a whole bunch of, right? I mean, this is what happens is you're now sort of almost forming a treaty because Abraham is the brother, That's which right. is a half truth, right? Um, we'll find out later. We'll in the find out story. later, right? But because of that, then she's actually more protected. And the way that the text talks about it, it's like, do this because you'll protect me. And that's very true. Um, but it's also do this because you'll be protected. If if she doesn't do this, if Abram and Sarai don't pre- present themselves this way to Pharaoh, they're dead or Abram's dead and she's taken without even being brought in as a wife with all of the due. I mean, she'll just be taken as sort of an act of war in this tribalism. But instead now Abram gets to protect her and he gets to negotiate a bride price. It's it's weird for us to think of because all of it sounds arbitrary and it none of it sounds like the way we would want to behave today. And the answer that your answer is like, yes, of course, we're not going to behave this way today. This is a terrible way to behave. But if you found yourself in a land where these were the rules, unbeknownst to you, you would you would start to function in them for the pureness of survival, just for yep. that pure motivation. Yep. It is one of the things about the Bible is that it's not full of perfect examples. Ever. Ever. <laughs> And, well, I would say that the difference between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament is that you do have an idea of Jesus being perfect. Yes. And so we don't have any saints right. in that same kind of way. I know that St. Jacob and St. This and St. That and the other and Old Testament people have been made into, quote, unquote, New Testament saints. But it uh, doesn't matter. It's, there, there are no perfectly righteous people. Right. And there are people who pass a lot of tests. Abraham was going to pass a lot of tests and demonstrate his faithfulness to God. But still, these are not terrific uh, qualities. Well, and God is not here canonizing for all time ancient Near Eastern cultural practices. Right. Right. We don't read the book of Genesis or, as far as I'm concerned, any book in my Bible, old or new, and say, I can't wait to live like those people then. Right? I live today, and because I believe that God is alive, right, and living, breathing, active, that God's not dead, then I have to reinterpret in light of the values that push through these stories. I reinterpret then how I live in this moment, in this day, in this place. And if I lived somewhere else, I might have to reinterpret those stories again for what that means for that other setting that I'm living in. But because we live today, we look back at this and we think how backwards or how disgusting or how inappropriate or how patriarchal. And yes, it is patriarchal. But Abraham is finding a way to protect Sarai in a patriarchal system. And that is something that I think we can be thankful for, right? Well, I'm not sure he's... Uh, let me disagree with you for a second. Please. This is bad at about. He's not protecting her. He's protecting he's himself. He's protecting himself. Because she ends up... She Sarai is the representative of the entire Jewish people. Right. In 
this story in terms of that's what happens to them in Egypt. Later on, the people will be enslaved. Joseph is enriched through his particular position. Mm -hmm. And so Abraham is the Joseph position, and Sarai is the people. Right. And so, um, and that's a very, very, very interesting kind of thing. You also have the situation that, that Avram is, is condemning what will be the way that the future Egyptians will act because they just take what they want. Mm-hmm. They just take what they want. No, no, they weren't any different, I don't think, than any other people. So I don't want to come down on Egyptians. Right, right. But, but that's the way that they will. And there's no be. Torah yet, right? There's no, nope. there's no law or commands or instructions governing how we should be interacting with other people as they come into our land as strangers. Right. So here's what happens if you're a stranger in a land without that patriarchal household covering of that Beit Av that's going with him. Abraham leaves all of that, right? He leaves all of that protection. Now he's on his own. And we can say, yes, he is protecting himself and he has his his own self-interest at heart. True. But if he doesn't do this, he's also not protecting Sarai. It's the typical immigrant story anywhere in the world. Whenever you leave where you're coming from and wherever your rules were, you go to a place with new rules. And if you don't adapt, you're in trouble. Right. If if he doesn't do this, he will be killed and she will be taken anyway. not as a wife. Right. Right. So maybe you're right. So she's she's upgraded. <laughs> but she still is taken into the household. She's and that's still story, taken into the household. That's yeah. the same language that's used for Esther. Mm-hmm. She is yeah. taken. Yeah. And what's interesting about Esther and Sarah is that uh Sarah lives to be hundred and twenty seven. And that's the only time that number is used, except for that's how many countries Ahasuerus ruled over, so that Sarah and Esther are equated in that very same way. Interesting. So Sarah in Pharaoh's house is like Esther in Ahasuerus's palace. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Anyway, the, uh, the, yeah. the next part of it is Pharaoh says, you didn't tell me she's your wife. Now, this is part of the plaguing part of the story. That's why didn't God just tell Pharaoh? Right. Is there something? I mean, first of all, this is a terse little story. It's Very short. one of the tersest, greatest examples of the terseness of the Bible because it leaves out most details. How did Pharaoh? So, why didn't God tell Pharaoh like God would tell Abimelech? We don't know. We can make it up, which our ancestors have done. Very creatively. And, <laughs> and here's another one they created, and we were talking about this earlier. How did Pharaoh realize that Sarah was married? That is, there's no mention from God. There's no, right. no necromancer. There's no magician from the court comes in and says, oh, and there wasn't this kind of spy where I heard this guy talking about his wife and stuff. There's none of that there. Mm-hmm. All those are possible. So what our ancestors came up with is that the plaguing for Pharaoh was specifically related to his attempting to make love with her. Right. How is Sarai going to be protected in this scenario? Right. How would God protect her? Well, the only way he could protect her would be if all of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household were sort of like afflicted with um, an inability to consummate the relationship. A painful inability to consummate. They call <laughs> right. it a plague. And so the closer he got to her, the more it hurt. <laughs> the more afflicted he was the with the affliction. The more afflicted he was, right. Until he finally figured out that there must have been a problem like that, that there was, that his inability to consummate this relationship or the pain that he was having when he was doing so must have been related to the fact that she was a married woman and this was wrong. Yeah, he's got to figure out what is the problem? Why am I not able to take this woman? Ah, 
it must be because she belongs to somebody else. So it wasn't because he was dumb that God didn't talk to him. He was pretty stupid. He was pretty smart. He was he able figured to, it out. He figured yeah. it out. Right. That was God's way of talking to him. Now, the question is, can we all learn from that? That mm-hmm. is, how did God tell Avram to get out of your father's house? Was it Avram, you know, that kind yeah. of a thing in a Charlton Heston voice? Or was it a series of revelations, realizations, things that came to him? What is this the way that God spoke to Avimelech later, mm-hmm. but just not mentioned that way because they wanted to make sure that we understood that this was a prefiguring of the Exodus and the story that would go down to there. And so and these are difficult things to say, but I do know that there are times when I have wanted to go someplace and ended up in another place, and that's where I was supposed to have been all along. Right. Happens a lot in my life. And, uh, and I'm not really looking for it. Uh, things are just happening that way, and there I am. And there's something that needs to be done in a divine kind of way. And I don't mean like I'm going to make a miracle. Uh, somebody needs help. Somebody needs a handout. Somebody needs directions. There's something for me to do in the place that I ended up inadvertently. And to my mind, inadvertently. And there I am. And I can realize that my job is here and that I am being guided. Or I cannot... That's right. a whole, you know, right. that, that's my, that's how I've been predisposed to think of these occasions. Right. Well, and, and if we consider that as we read our text, God is the central character of the story, right? And it's not really about Abram or Sarai or Pharaoh or any of these um, ancient Near Eastern cultural practices or anything else. We're just going to go, okay, how is God at work in this world, <laughs> right? Well, God is at work even when you're in a strange land, and God is with you even when you're in a strange household, and God is with you um, even when you're in a situation that is uncomfortable and um, and frightening, like, that God can be with us in all of those different ways and places. Um, f- yeah, so I, I think for me that's that's this hope that I have when I read these passages and the others. It's not that I look at these passages to say, here's how I'm going to behave, but to trust instead, oh, that God is still at work in these places even when it's less than desirable. And to move the story on a little bit, Pharaoh says, take your wife and get out, and then make sure that they are escorted out. And that's exactly how the Israelites will be kicked out of the kicked land. Kicked out, right? Pushed out by everybody. The whole country just pushes them out. And at the end, with so, wealth. With wealth. Right, yeah. having uh, borrowed <laughs> items of gold and silver, right. etc. And so as they then come out up out of this land, um, there's going to be, with all of this wealth, some difficulty into the new land that they go into, right? So here we go. <laughs> so they go up, and now we're in chapter 13, verse 2, Vavram Kaved Ma'od. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Like, Avram was very heavy. He was very heavy. <laughs> with with uh, livestock and gold and silver. So when it says kaved here, it means he had a lot of it. But yeah. And the word kavod is honor. So kavod comes from kaved. It's like being uh, worth your weight in gold. Worth your right? weight in gold. How yeah. much were you? Heavy, how much you weigh? Weighty. <laughs> right. Yeah. He was a he was a very heavy man. Vayelech <laughs> lamasaav, <laughs> and he continued on his journey. Minegev ad Beit El, ad hamakom asher hayasham. Then he went back to Beit El to the place he had been before. San Ohalabatila, where he put his tent before. Bein Beit El uvein between the house of God and the ruin. 
Bethel and I. So here you are. Once you leave, whether you leave or you're there, you're always in Israel between the house of God and the ruin. You can make the country the way you want it, and that's just not Israel. That's mm-hmm. everywhere. You can make mm-hmm. place the house of God, mm-hmm. or you can make it a ruin, mm-hmm. and that's always the problem. El makom mizbeach asher asasham b'rishonai. He made it, went to the place where he had put up the altar before. And God and Avram called out God's name there. So that means he prayed there after he did a sacrifice. And even Lot, who went with Abraham, had all kinds of flocks and herds and tents. Tents means people. There were so many of them all the animals and the tents and the people, that they couldn't live together in the same area. They had so much stuff, they couldn't live together. So, and there were fighting times between the two right. sets of, uh, of the shepherds of Avram and shepherds of Lot. And that just sounds like the um, confirmation hearings for the, <laughs> for the right. Supreme Court. Well, and, and the idea, too, that here in this conflict, it's not between farmer and shepherd, like we have with Cain and Abel. It's between shepherd and shepherd, yep. right? So where will the, where could there be enough land? They, they just, there's not enough to support them. Yeah, everybody fights over stuff. Right. In this case, it's grass. Right. You know, right. So, and we have a repeat of the thing, of the phrase we had earlier that the Canaanite and the Perizzite, not, not parasite, but the parasite, Prezi, were then in the land. And we know that because, you know, at the time this was given, if it were given in the wilderness, the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the other ites were still living in that land. So that's not a surprise to anybody. Vayomer Avram el Lot. Let's not have fighting between you and me and our shepherds because we're brothers. The whole land is in front of you. Go away from me. Any way you want. And here's my, one of my favorite lines. If you go left, if the left, I'll write. Vim hayamin, and if the right, Ismaila, and I will left. <laughs> and you can't do that in English. So if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. But I just love that Ismaila, I'll go, I'll go left. Vaisan lot et vayar et kol kikar hayardain kikulam Hashem et Sodom et Amorah. It was a beautiful land. He looked at this whole plain down there by the Dead Sea. Well, it was like the Salt Sea. Right. And this is before God had destroyed it and turned it into a lousy place. Um, it was a wonderful place at that time. Kagan Hashem, Ka'eretz Mitzrayim. It was like it was like God's own garden. It was like Egypt. Bochat Tzohar, when you come to Tzohar. Not, not having been at Tzohar. It's such a great, Tzohar. interesting comparison. Like It's like the Garden of God, like Egypt. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wait, wait. I thought Egypt's going to be like the iron smelting furnace in the prison. Yeah, I know. Right? Nope. No, not nope. here. Not in this verse. If you think of Egypt as basically an ever watered place, right? Just the stuff coming down from the Nile, and you can canal it out to other people, then fine. And Lot again means laudanum or kind of opium. 
Lot chose at Kolakikara Yarden. He chose the Jordan Valley. Vaisal Lot Mikedem. He went east. Vaypardu Ish Me'alechav. And now the people split apart. And Avram Yeshav Be'erz Kanan. Vlot Yeshav Be'are Kikar. Vayhal Ad Sedom. And so Avram lived in the land of Canaan. Lot lived in the valley of Sodom, and he tented down there. Va'anshe Sodom ra'im v'chataim ladonai. The people of Sodom were miserable, lousy sinners to God. Ma'od, horribly so. Ma'od. Ma'od. Lots. Terrible. They were lots. Yeah. <laughs> lots of lots bad. Lots of lots of bad. Yeah. yeah. So I, this passage is fascinating to me, right? Because Lot is going to lift up his eyes and set them down. down. <laughs> on the Yarden, on the plain that is to go down, because the Jordan is called, you know, Yarden, right? It goes down. It goes down, because it reaches from the highest heights of Hermon, and it goes all the way down to the lowest place on earth, to the Salt Sea. And there, he's going to note that it looks well watered, and it's beautiful. By the way, every single river goes down. Right. There's not a river that goes up, except... No, in miracles. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But the Jordan goes down quickly, right? It goes from Hermon, which is so, I'm just blanking on the exact height, but it's, I mean, it's the highest peak in Israel in the land of Canaan, well, in right? Syria on one right. half and Israel on the other, yeah, now. And these massive headwaters that are at the base of Hermon. And then within just a very short period of time, within a handful of miles, it's going to go down to the Sea of Galilee. Well, and then so it, it does go down and down and down, and he goes down and down and down with it. And they're making a distinction between the going up to Canaan and the going down to Sodom. And the up is always a concept of spiritual elevation. Right. And the down is the opposite, spiritual degradation. And so there he has gone down. It's down also and down the, and down, yeah. Right. And in the next chapter, we're going to see how Lot being in Sodom drives the story. Right. And what is it that he looks... I mean, he's sort of letting his eyes give him the information that he wants. This looks like it's going to be a good place to live. It looks well watered. But what do we know about the Salt Sea? Well... It's salty. <laughs> right. It's, there is no water there that you can drink. Nope. It's not a place where you can actually live unless you're by Engedi, right? Well, unless if you're, you're by, by these... the sides where the mountain streams come down. Yeah, where immersive. the mountain streams come down, you're fine, right? But if you're looking from a distance out at the Salt Sea, it can look incredible from a distance. And when you get there, you're like, oh, this is dangerous. Like, I can't, I can't swim in here. Right, I can't bathe in there. I mean, you can go and have your salt sea treatment treatments there, but it's not the same as nope. from a distance. It can look like a beautiful, wonderful freshwater lake, but it's not. But then again, that's what it looks like now, and who knows what it theoretically even was then supposed way to look like. way back in like the ancient times, we have stories of people walking towards even when the Romans are, are in the land, right? They walk towards and like, oh, here's this lake, yeah, and they're like, oh, it's like asphalt. You are a mis biblical geographer. That's what you are. <laughs> but but the thing is, the, the the mythos of this particular story is that before God overthrew the cities of the plain, it was a lovely place. Mm, interesting. Different neighborhood. Yeah. No, I, I, so sure, maybe. Um, but there's no outlet. <laughs> My for geological the sea. reality is it was probably what you're describing. But <laughs> <laughs> right. We have even like the mosaic map of the Met at the Metaba Church yep. where you sh it shows fish 
going down the Jordan, hitting the Dead Sea, and turning around and going back up. <laughs> the fish don't. There's nothing that will live nothing, there, right? No. But the what I like about this picture is that I think that we have a faith that comes by hearing, not by seeing. Right? Abraham doesn't see a form, but he hears. God has this. He has this. Something happens between him and God, and he gets up and he goes. And later on, God will say to the Israelites, remember at Mount Sinai, you saw no form, right? But you heard. And in That's this case... That's why we case, say the Shema, hear, O, hear, Israel, o Israel, not see, O Israel. Because if you see. were seeing, O Israel, you'd be seeing an idol. Right. But when you hear, you can transmit knowledge. Right. And when we see, our eyes can deceive us. Right? There are things like I can look down at the Jordan near the Dead Sea and see a well-watered plain. And then I can say, huh. Now, if he's up by Jericho, sure, there's a lot of water down there. But if he's down in this place where we would settle more of the possible locations of Sodom and Gomorrah, then maybe he's allowing himself to be deceived. And that fits well for the story that we'll have with Lot coming up of what what looks good on the outside might not be true when you get a little bit closer the whole like don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing also he had egypt in his mind he has he egypt in his got mind. out of egypt and this looks like egypt yep let's let's go back to those places that's a it's a great insight and and when we start to think throughout the rest of our text of times when people are deceived it's often by their eyes i mean samson is a wonderful example of this um don't let your eyes deceive you it's not what looks good right it's about listening and, and hearing what God says. I like the imagery that, you know, if, if you and I don't ever have a conversation, but we just walk past one another on the street and we see one another, well, I've seen you, but I don't have a relationship with you, right? But if we sit down, we have a conversation. Now we can say, I've talked to this person. Same if you told me you met a head of state, right? I'd say, well, that's nice. You saw the person and maybe you shook a hand, but did you have a conversation? And if you had a conversation, was it a personal conversation? Yeah, what kind of conversation was it? And the God that we both worship has a conversation, right? It's not, it's a real relationship that we get to talk back to God. Abraham's going to talk back to God. There's going to be a big bargaining session coming up. That's something, it's not about what we see, it's about what we hear and the conversation that occurs as a result of that. That's where a real relationship comes from not just seeing somebody. I, for me, I'm like, I, I want to learn the lesson of, of Lot and not just decide to go and live at, in a place that looks good. No, I want to have the uh, inspector come and check it out for me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. What are the values that are sitting behind that? Right? Right. What, are, what are the things that are going to motivate our choices? And I'll give a shout out to my husband, but um, you know, there's, we live in a valley where a lot of people make a lot of money, right? And a lot of people make a lot of money or not even that much money, but have to make these crazy family sacrifices to make it work. You know, they, they come home late, they leave early, they don't see their kids, all these other kinds of things. Um, ethics are lost oftentimes. And so we, Kevin and I have made decisions. Obviously, we're both in pastoral ministry. We don't make a ton of money. Right? That's fine. Because when I get to look at the quality of life that we lead, it's one that maybe from the outside doesn't look um, as well watered as the plains <laughs> of Sodom and Gomorrah. But I, I get to watch um, him, for example, yesterday spend hours and hours and hours with a newly arrived refugee family 
just taking them around, making sure that they have the food that they want, taking them out so they can have some fun, um, taking them out for dinner till late at night. And, you know, he's an incredible, introverted, wonderful man, and he's spending all of this time to make sure this family's here. And I thought, this is richness. This is wealth for me to have that kind of partner in life that's going to lay down his life for others in, in the area, in, in all of that. That's the, the thing that comes through hearing and not necessarily by seeing, right? Definitely true. So 